Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Award-winning author Lucinda Brandt fell in love with the 18th century as an 11-year-old who picked up a dusty old tome and started reading. She says it looked boring, it didn't have any pictures, but she immediately fell in love with the world revealed there, a world she felt she'd once lived in. Hello there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in today's binge reading episode Lucinda talks about her successful career as a best-selling author of Georgian romance with an international following who adore the aristocratic family she writes about almost as much as she does. You can download the, load the first book in the Roxton series, Midnight Marriage, for free on Lucinda's website but if audiobooks are more your thing, we've got a special treat, three audiobook copies of Midnight Marriage to give away to three lucky readers. Enter the draw on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. Links to the free Midnight Marriage ebook and everything else we've talked about can be found in the show notes for this episode on the website as well. And while you're there, subscribe to the podcast so you won't ever be short of a great book you won't want to put down. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We love to hear your views. But now here's Lucinda. Hello there, Lucinda, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Jenny. It's um, very nice of you to invite me on your show, and I must say I think this is probably only the second podcast I've ever done. So, Oh, well, that's yeah. wonderful. Thank you. Uh, there'll probably be many more in the future. <laughs> Look, was there a once-upon-a-time moment when you decided that you just had to write fiction as distinct from any other writing you might have been doing? And if so, was there a catalyst for it? I don't know if there was a once upon a time moment. I've always liked creative writing. I've enjoyed it since school, probably around seven or eight. I remember thinking I really enjoy writing stories. Then it would have been high school. I started writing for myself, uh, just fiction. I just thought I'd, I'd, I'd try my hand at it. We had a creative writing class in English, but it wasn't enough for me. So I just started writing stories and then I would take them into class because I didn't really like maths very much. And I'd pass them around and I realised I had an audience because they'd say, oh, when are we getting the next chapter? So you passed them around on maths? I did. did didn't do much maths. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear, you're another one of those like me. I used to read something under the desk while the, the teacher was talking. I just was bored with what they were saying, but I couldn't leave a book alone. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> about right. So that's how I got into writing fiction. And then I put it down when I went to university because, you know, writing essays is a whole different sort of 
kettle of fish as far as writing goes. And so I then picked it up again once I started work after I'd finished university. So you've made your name with 18th century historical romance. And that in itself is interesting because Regency is really supposedly the hot period for romance. And and there's millions of Regency books. What made you settle on the Georgians, the 1700s, and what attracted you to them? Well, I started reading, I mean, I've always loved history since, you know, from primary school. And then I did modern and ancient history at high school. But I remember picking up a book when I was about 11 and it was the, it was a really dry book and it's still on my shelves now, The History of Modern France, 1715 to 1789. And I started reading it and I just fell in love with 18th century France. And I thought, I'm, this is, this is me. This is, I mean, I felt like I'd lived before, like I'd lived before in that time. So that really got me into starting collecting books on the 18th century. So it was France that was my uh, main interest. And then, of course, you know, I progressed over across the channel, went to England and started researching about that time period. So it just sort of was a natural progression to go from loving that time period as far as learning about the history to writing uh, fiction in that time. You've won multiple awards for one of your series. I think it was probably the first series you started on, the Roxton Family series, and that is set between aristocratic France and England. Where did the Roxtons appear from? Did they take a lot of imagining or did they kind of sit there in your mind right from the beginning? Well, I started off, I suppose, with Antonia and the Duke of Roxton as the two main characters and the first book was Noble Sator which I wrote a long time ago and it sort of just grew from there I thought well you know what would their children be like and then there was cousins and just the family tree just sort of exploded I suppose. Yes and and the one that is on your website that's free for download is Midnight Marriage that is based on real events. A secret midnight marriage establishes a dynasty. And I was fascinated by that as well. What were those real events that are at the back of that whole story? Well, I read Stella Tilliard's book, Aristocrats, which was based um, on the Lennox family, which is the first Duke of Richmond was the son of, was an illegitimate son of Charles II. And his son was married off to, I think, to settle his father, a gambling debt. And he was just brought into a room. And this girl, who I think she was 12, because that was the age of um, the consent that girls could marry. And they were married off there and then. Uh, the gambling debt was settled um, and she was sent back to the nursery and the boy was sent off on the grand tour. And I thought, well, here, here, this is a fantastic story. Um, Then what happened, he returned from the grand tour, was at the theatre, saw a girl uh, across the theatre in a box and thought, oh, you know, she looks very nice. I want to be introduced to her. Um, Can someone tell me her name? And someone said, well, actually, um, that's your wife. What an amazing story. I mean. So, like, truth is sort of stranger than fiction. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, 
it's been said that your books give readers the golden age of romance with a modern voice. And I wondered, first of all, how you might define what the golden age of romance was and whether it was a calculated thing on your part to give them a modern voice or whether that that was lucky serendipity. Well, that that actual quote phrases from a reviewer, that's what she thought my books were like and I just thought well that that's probably true in a way they that I suppose the golden age of romance for me was like the high Victorians like Anthony Trollope and Leo Tolstoy there was this the, the setting itself for the books is just as important as probably the characters and the events that were were going on in the stories so it, it's that's to me like there's a, a lot of characters, there's, there's events, there's this, the big sweeping historical setting. So to me that's sort of like the golden age of romance. The, as for the modern voice, well, we all write probably to our to our time period in, in a way. I mean, Georgette Heyer, although she wrote Regencies, she had a very much an Edwardian mindset when she was writing those. So we are a product of our times. So me, you know, the, you know tw- late 20th century sort of mindset, I suppose, I, I bring to the stories even though I'm trying to write them as historically accurate as possible. Yes, I guess that for language, if you really did try to be totally faithful to the language that they used, it would be um, just basically hard for modern readers to understand, wouldn't it? You have to find a happy medium there. Yeah, probably the same as like reading Shakespeare. If you, if you read Shakespeare now, it's, it's, it is like a reading another language. You have to really get your ear in to understand what he's saying like for, for for the modern uh, reader, so and reading like letters of from the Georgia, it's the same. It, it's a it's a different um, uh, way of talking and and speaking, and so I suppose I try to make it more palatable, I suppose, for for modern readers. Yes, of course you'd have to. Yeah, you you seem to know this family intimately because there there are eight Roxton books, but two of them are published volumes of love letters and correspondence, which is also a little unusual. It shows you that you've really dug down into this family. And I wondered if they they almost feel like your own family. They do. And as strange as it may seem, they do sort of talk to me in a way. They're always in the back of my mind. I have quite a few books that I still need to write of characters that are mentioned but haven't sort of had their stories told and, believe you me, they sort of are there saying, well, come on now, hurry up, write my story. <laughs> and letters are just so, I, I do mention letters in the book, so I thought, well, readers would like to know what's actually in those letters and the Georgians were huge letter writers. I mean, that was the social media of the day was to write letters. I mean, even if you lived at opposite ends of the village, in a lot of cases you would write a letter and send it by one of the servants to the to the correspondent rather than going down yourself and visiting. Uh, people spend a lot of time, you know, composing and writing their thoughts and their innermost feelings. Interesting, isn't it? Because we, we find it hard to imagine a day now without the telephone, but of course they didn't have telephones. So you can understand how letters would be so important. 
That's right. And I mean, when I was living in the US back in the late 80s, making a telephone call back then was quite expensive back to Australia. So I spent most of my time writing letters and to my parents and especially my father and he would write me, you know, five, six, seven-page letters in return and that was our principal means of correspondence. So maybe that was also in the back of my mind when writing these books as well. Yes. Look, you've enlisted a lot of readers into your enthusiasm for the Georgians. You've got a Pinterest account that that really specialises in 18th century everything, everything from architecture to fashion. And you've you've developed a huge following of people who share that passion. How did you do that? Well, if that's that, if that's the case, my um, little scheme has worked because when I first <laughs> saw Pinterest, I was actually living in New Zealand at the time, and I thought this is just fabulous because I'm quite even though I love words. And when I was at school, it was you know you, all the books were basically words. It was very hard to find a photo. I love um, visual learning, and in this day and age, I mean, I, I've taught high school the kids, you know, they love movies and it's all visual. So when I saw Pinterest, I thought this would be just fantastic as not only as a repository for, well, at that stage it was mainly I could see people were using it for fashion and weddings and, and, and um, holidays. And I thought, no, I mean, if I want to get the word out there about the 18th century, this is the way to do it. So that's what I did. You find most wonderful sources for that material too, which... You seem to have dug very deep to find, you know, really good stuff. Well, when I started off, I really wanted to make sure that I would get the sources right. So if there's a a painting, that it would go back to the gallery or to the museum or wherever. So then, and I suppose that that's the teacher coming out of me. it, It allows then that person to follow the trail and if they want to know more about that painting or about that artist, it, well, there they are, they're, they're at the source. Whereas if you just stick it up and you don't have a source, you know, it, it's great but it, it, it doesn't have, you know, what I hoped it would be would be to, to, to help get people more interested in the 18th century and that's best if you've got trails. Sure. Look, the books also have the most gorgeous covers. I mean, Midnight Marriage is a perfect oh, thank you. case. It's just sort of delicious. And I gather that that is part of a project that you've got underway to to develop new covers for some of the books and maybe even do it a bit of a relaunch. I'm not sure. Tell us about that project. Well, the project started probably six years ago now. I had it in the back of my mind to have covers that accurately reflected the content and, as you can imagine, trying to find stock images of people in 18th century clothing is near impossible. And, it, I mean, even, even um, for, for, for any covers, stock images are, are hard to find what you're looking for. And, I, and not only that, I wanted to make sure that the, the, the costumes were period correct for the years that the book was set and also that the models look like the characters in the book. So that was, that was naively I set out on the journey and thought, well, you know, how hard can this be? Well, it's really hard to do that because you not only you have to invest a lot of time in tracking down 
you know, models that look like the characters in my head, but also I had to employ costume designers to make the, the, the outfits and then finding a photographer that we could collaborate with. Um, so we had a few stops and starts, a, a couple of people fell by the wayside, but finally we're getting there. And I thought, well, why not? Why not? I mean, if you can write, if I can write the stories that I love to read and my readers love, then the let, let's try and put covers on them that that reflect the stories and give readers something that's um, visually appealing as well. Gosh, that's amazing. I mean, there would be very, very few authors in the world that would go to that sort of length of trouble for their covers. It just would be considered quite impossible. That is remarkable. Um, well, I suppose that that that's the um, beauty of being an indie author is that you control every aspect of the process. So why not control what goes on the cover? And does that, that probably makes me a bit of a control freak? But I mean, I just thought, well, let's see how 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 this journey pans out, and that's why we made behind the scenes videos as well because I wanted to show the readers and other authors what actually goes into the making of of, of a cover, and, and it's not easy, but I mean, it it can be done, and I'm I'm happy that that. The readers have embraced them, and also they say that not only do they love the costumes, but the the models that I've chosen are who they, you know, I describe the characters in the books. Mm, Yay, mm. double win. That's fantastic. And just for people who are listening, we'll have links to all of these, the, the videos and things. There'll be links to all of Lucinda's material on the show notes that accompany this podcast so you'll be able to find the links easily in one place. Look, as well as the Roxtons, you've got two other series that we mustn't overlook. Alex Haley is a series of mysteries set in the same period. They're, they're slightly darker stories with a strong mystery element and twisty plots. I wonder if mystery was a bit of a challenge after the romance or whether it was an easy transition for you. I decided to do the Alec Halsey Mysteries. Well, I just sort of wrote the first book and now, of course, it's turned into a, a series. I suppose I wanted to show the sort of more darker side of of life in, in Georgian England and Europe with a protagonist who is sort of on the, on the outer edges of the aristocracy. Are they more difficult? Yeah, well... <laughs> Yeah, in a way, because, you know, um, you know, I love reading mysteries and I love trying to catch the author out. So writing something that um, you hope that will surprise the author, the readers at the end, go, oh, I didn't see that coming, that for me is, is rather difficult. But I can't write a mystery unless I know the ending. So I start with the end and then I go back to the beginning. Yes, and there was a question actually that I, that kept on popping up in my mind when I was reading the Roxton books, and that was, did you have a Bible, a sort of, you know, a, a Bible in quotes of all of the characters because there's so many threads in those stories, and that would apply to Alec as well, that you have to keep track of a lot of threads. How do you do that? Well, with the Roxtons, I have quite intricate family trees, which I've made, and that helps me keep 
probably track of those characters. Although, you know, I I come from, like, on my mother's side, she was one of 13 and I had, you know, 20, 30, I don't know, 40 cousins. And maybe I'm just used to, I can keep track of all of those people in my head. So for me, it wasn't so difficult with the Roxtons. Um, keeping track and the Alec Halsey mysteries of motive and characters and what was happening, I have really extensive note notes that I, and I have tabs on them and I'm, I'm a bit of a, I love stationery, so I write all my hand notes. And so you say you know the end. Do you know the middle as well or do you really still have a bit of fluidity in the middle as you go along? I have a bit of fluidity, um, particularly with the romances, but with the Alec Houses, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll have plot points, but there is room to move if I think, you know, if the character takes over and it's going in one direction, I think, all right, well, let's go there and see what, what happens, but then I'll try and bring it back on track yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got another series again, well, at least a, a couple of books in it. I'm not quite sure if it's going to continue. Salt Hendon and a psychopathically character that people have really reacted to, the Lady Diana. On your website, you say that the real horror is that she was based on someone I know. So tell us about Salt Hendon. Oh, that was a bit of a therapy session, wasn't it, getting that book done? Well, I wrote uh, Salt Bride first and then, of course, the Salt Redux, which is so it's sort of a, and then there's a, a short story that goes with that as well. And and I suppose it was a bit cathartic writing Salt Bride that the, the villainess in it is she's actually, can you believe it, two people that I knew that were like that. <laughs> I thought one was bad enough. Now, she's she suffers from Munchausen by proxy syndrome. I don't know if you've probably heard of it. We've, there's been a few cases in the media mm-hmm. of carers and mainly it, seems, it tends to, from my research, affect women more than men in that they use their child or whoever they're caring for as the catalyst of getting attention for themselves and they'll make that person very ill and then they'll take them to doctors and you know it's it's a whole yeah it's quite horrifying actually so Diana in the story she suffers from that but her psychopathic tendencies and her fixation on the hero yeah that that is based on so two people, two yeah, women that I knew that I worked with actually in two different places. Wow! Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's probably quite a good point to move on from talking about the individual books to talking a little bit more widely about your career. And you mentioned teaching, and you've mentioned living in a couple of different places. Tell us a little bit bit about your life before you became a full time writer. And have those experiences contributed to your fiction? Well, obviously they have because you found the Lady Diana amongst them. But, yes, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I met my husband at university and he finished his PhD and came home one day and he said, you know, you needed to get a postdoc because he was a, a scientist, researcher. And I said to him, look, I'll go anywhere. This is back in the 80s. I'll go anywhere with you but I don't want to go to America. Because, you know, all you see was, you know, 
guns and, you know, all that sort of simplistic side of life in the States. And he came home and, like, a couple of weeks later and says, guess where we're going? And so off we went to the US. And actually I loved it. We lived in Knoxville, Tennessee for six years. I had a fabulous time. I met all sorts of different people. I was on his visa and what was stamped in my passport was attachment to the principal alien. So he <laughs> he was the principal alien and I was the attachment, <laughs> and which meant I couldn't leave or come into the country without him and I couldn't work. So I started writing full-time then, but in the end I was able to work and I spent a few years working part-time at concerts, at rock concerts, so selling T-shirts. Gosh, and so was that the Roxton's that you started on then? Yes, yes, I wrote Noble Satin when I was um, in. I actually wrote Noble Satin Midnight Marriage and the first Alec Halsey when I was living in the States. And so you started Alec even while you were sort of fairly early on the Roxton's. That's interesting. Yeah, 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 I did. And then we had our daughter over there and we came back to Australia and I worked in university administration at various universities for about 20 years. Then I retrained as a teacher, mature age student, went back to university and was a bit of a girly swat. I topped the humanities faculty and won some sort of, I don't know, I think it was a medal for coming top of the faculty for the arts faculty for teaching and then I went and taught in a girls' school for a number of years, history and geography, which I love the teaching part of it. It was excellent and I love teaching senior girls like 17, 18. That was good, very interesting. I enjoyed that time. Great, great. Look, if, is there one thing you've done in your career more than any other that you would consider to be the secret of your success? With my writing career, it probably yes. just just persisting, just well, I suppose believing in myself and my and and just writing what I want to read and thinking, well, there has to be people out there that will enjoy what I'm what I'm writing and never giving up. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting how many writers say exactly that, that it's just a matter of not letting yourself be discouraged. Mm. Yeah, that's true. From small beginnings, as they say. Yes. yes, that's right. Look, turning to Lucinda as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, and it's partly predicated around the sorts of readers who like to follow series. Are you a binge reader yourself? And if so, who do you like to read? Obviously, it sounds like you've done a lot of academic reading, but when you turn to sort of more light-hearted fiction or genre fiction, who do you like to read? I'll read fiction between books, so and that's probably one or two two months a year, you know, I'll, I'll down tools for the non-fiction side of things and, and, and read fiction. I tend to go back to classics because I love, like, the language of, you know, Trollope and um, Tolstoy and Austen. But I do love, there's, there's two writers, I love Mary Ballog and I love her Bedouin series, the Slightly books. They're my favourites of hers and they're definite binge reading books. And my other 
my secret sort of binge read is the Inspector Montalbano crime fiction books by Andre Camilleri. Oh, yes. Now, I have vaguely come across those, but they're both probably a weeny bit, you know, left of field. A lot of people probably have heard of neither very, very well. Mary Fallock, what period is that oh, set in? Mary Ballog. Sorry, I didn't say it right. B O L B A. Oh, sorry. Ballog. Yes. I do. yes. Yeah, Ballog. Yeah. 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 So she's, you know, quite famous as, as an historical romance. Yes. Writer, yeah, yep. I have seen her work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she, she, she's, she writes wonderful stories. And Andre Camilleri, who I think he just passed away last year in his nineties. Yeah, he. I came to his books through the through SBS. The the series was on TV, and then I picked up books, and they are definite binge reading books. If you like crime, set in Sicily, very funny. Very dry wit. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Look, starting to come to our end of our time together, so circling around and looking back down the tunnel of time, is there anything you change about the way that you've structured your writing life? And if so, what would it be? As far as when I became a full-time writer or just writing in general, I'm not... Probably when you started to see it as a career. I mean, was there a point at which you were writing for yourself and then you felt that it was going to be a career? Actually, and my husband would laugh at this, and it's, but I wish I'd listened to him years earlier because he kept saying to me, <laughs> he kept saying to me, you know, e-reading's coming. There's going to be electronic reading. You realise this? And I'd go, yeah, yeah, I know it's coming, but when, da, da, da. And if I'd known that um, it was going to come when it did, I think I would have thrown in my university job much earlier and written up a storm like 10 years earlier, knowing that this was coming. But, you Mm. know, that's for, you know, it's easy to say that now, but he always said that there would be electronic you know, there would be e-books one day. So are you entirely indie published or are you hybrid with some other? No, 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 I'm entirely indie published. My first book was, uh, Noble Saddle was published traditionally because I'd won a competition, Random House Women's Day Romantic Fiction Prize, and that part of the prize was publication, but everything else is indie published. We have a publishing company. Great, yep, yep, yep. So I was encouraged to hear you say that there are probably more Roxton books in the pipeline, but what is next for Lucinda the writer in the rest of 2020 and going into 2021? Um, I'm writing the fifth Alec Housie mystery and also writing, well, starting to plan it, is a a book set between Noble Satter and Midnight Marriage. There's a 20-year period there and that's going to be um, about Antonia and the Duke's early years of their marriage. So that's coming up in 2020, 2021, and then after that we'll be looking at Julian and Deb's children. I'll be right. Fantastic. Yeah. Do you ever write more than one book at the same time? If you'd asked me that about a month ago, I would have said no. <laughs> but now I'm, I don't know whether it's COVID-19 or everything else in the world that's going on, but I, I have decided that 
in the evenings I would write the Antonia books and during the day I write the mysteries. So just to break up my, yeah, my wow. writing life. And, so, And that's what you're doing? At the moment, yes. We, I don't know how long that will last, but at the moment I think, well, you know, Antonia and, and Roxton are in my ear saying, come on, get this done. So I'll think, all right, well, I'll do, do that in the evening. And it's interesting that you've you've sort of chosen to focus on a couple that we already know a lot about and yet it will still be a romance. Yeah, it'll be interesting because I'm just writing what I, I think, I mean, what I, I, it's just something that I, I have to do. Whether readers embrace it, I don't know. I mean, I never sort of stick to any sort of formula or anything, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Now, interesting that you mentioned readers. Obviously, with Pinterest, you've developed a following, but how do you like interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? Oh, I love, I mean, I, I get me emails every day from readers. So, I mean, I interact with readers on a daily basis, but I also have a Facebook page and I also have a group, Lucinda's Gorgeous Georgians, which um, I'm happy for readers to join. It's a private group and we're in there and we chat about my books and characters and the 18th century. Wow, that's great. We'll put links to all of those in the show notes so that people can reach you easily. And you don't worry about Twitter and and, um, Instagram, it's more... I have a Twitter account and I'll post or retweet, you know, 18th century things. And I do have an Instagram, but to be honest, Jenny, my head's exploding. There's too much, like there's just so much social media out there. I mean, I just, I I need time to write. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, look, that's fabulous. It's been marvellous catching up with you today. I'm sure that your followers will will find the news that there's more Roxton's coming fantastic. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jenny. It's been a pleasure and thank you for having me. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. 
That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.